Welcome to Back from the Abyss, where we bring you stories of hope and healing, recovery and redemption. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock, your host and resident psychiatrist. Names and some details have been changed in these stories to maintain confidentiality. I do a lot of addiction work in my practice, and I often try to rank in my head which are the hardest addictions to overcome, with IV opioids usually being at the top. But then every time I start working with a new patient with an eating disorder, I'm reminded that there's actually a type of addiction which is even harder to overcome than any drugs or alcohol. Today, we hear Ellie's story, a 30-year battle with bulimia and despair and near death, and at the end, healing. Ellie grew up in rural Montana, at first going to school in a one-room schoolhouse, then moving to the in-town school, just as she entered the socially and physically awkward adolescent years. My parents did finally convince me to go to town uh, for school, and uh, it did change things for the better initially, I think. Um, I made friends and stuff. Uh, And then suddenly I was surrounded by young women, I mean, girls who are, I mean, we're all in different stages of, of puberty and whatnot. And, um, again, my body, but more as a, a, like a sexualized version of my body became like a priority in that, in that group. I mean, when the girls were always in like touching each other, pinching each other. And I was already super self-conscious and aware of my physical, space and it was made very clear to me that I did not um, I was not a desirable person and that I um, that my bot there were parts of my body that were very uh, repulsive or repellent um, to to both those girls and um, some of the boys in the class and I, uh, I had already been dabbling a little bit with dieting and, and stuff, uh, you know, like stealing my mom's Dexatrim and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, trying to sneak slim fast for, for lunch. Uh, but I really did not know. I mean, I knew that I needed to change my body and I didn't know how. Um, and... I mean, I don't, I just, I remember, like, I posted, like, my ideal weight all around our house, like, literally on, like, every cupboard, on the mirrors, and they were through the living room, it was everywhere, Uh, and then I was really, really invested in, like, trying to, you know, I was going to, like, get in shape and be beautiful and all of this stuff, and um, nothing changed because I was, at that point, like, 12, and Mm -hmm. um, bodies, I guess, just don't respond that way at that age. Uh, and then my cousin moved in with us, uh, who was my, my age, same grade and, uh, really beautiful, spectacular, interesting, eccentric girl. Uh, my sister was also like super gregarious and outgoing. And so I was with these two and, um, and I really started to struggle because I felt like, you know, my my cousin immediately fit in in our in our class. I mean, she was the center of attention all of the time, and we had been best friends up until that point. And uh, 
you know, she slept in my room with me and, um, and just the degree to which she, I think, was accepted. And, you know, my sister was really flourishing and I was still back, like, you know, most people not paying attention to me and um, trying to figure out how to fit in that I really started to struggle again. And I became super anxious uh, and like weirdly afraid of things and at night I'd be up all night like because I would think that something was in my closet which didn't feel appropriate for being that age um and just sad and invisible and you know my parents worked at a mine that was two hours away so I mean they were not around you were alone a lot yeah yeah a lot and um did your cousin and your sister see what was happening I'm just imagining your ideal weight posted around the house and and you're becoming more sad and sounds like withdrawn and fearful and yeah I I think that they I mean yeah they definitely noticed it and I mean I want to be clear that I'm very close to the both of them now um they I mean I considered my because my sister my best friends but we were that was a different time in our lives uh and they uh, they thought that was pretty funny, I think, um, and kind of pathetic. And, and as I sort of became more isolated, they both sort of fell into this group that I, in my interactions with them, I was always really embarrassed of myself and probably a little ashamed I'm guessing that time, that era, that place, the zero awareness of eating disorders. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, No, no. Here you were starting to develop a full-blown eating disorder, body body loathing, and with very obvious signs, but no no context to understand what that was. Yeah. I think that's that's true. And I think – and so that – so that started happening at that same time. My parents uh, both quit smoking, and they get my mother gained a lot of weight, um, and that became a focus in our household. And I became, I was really afraid of of things getting worse for me in terms of what I looked like, uh, and so I. I don't really even understand like how how this trajectory happened. I don't I don't remember, but I my cousin and I began fighting more and more and more and uh it and it was really emotional. It was in this really small space. I mean, we shared a like a tiny bedroom in like our the trailer thing that we lived in and uh this one night we were fighting and I just remember I was crying you know and she was you know called me something and uh I just that was it like my parents were at a party in a town that was like 30 miles away and we were all home alone uh and so I went uh my cousin was actually taking Prozac which was like no one knew what that was and none of us knew why but I knew it was like a powerful thing and so I went and got I got her Prozac and I got a bottle of Tylenol and I remember I stood in front of her 
and just started taking all of those and and say like look at me you know what look at me and she and she wouldn't and I took and and I ingested a bottle of Prozac and a bottle of Tylenol um and in front of her in front of her yeah with with no consequence uh until I realized like holy shit like my parents are not here I am in the middle of nowhere and I'm going to I'm going to die like I have no like I mean I understood like I had just like I was committing suicide And I became very frightened and I told and I so I showed her I was like, look, look at what I look at what I've done. And she finally acknowledged me and she said, oh, shit, we've got to get it. We've got to get it out. And she got out a spoon and took me to the bathroom and showed me how to uh, make myself throw up. And uh, and I couldn't I couldn't do it. I couldn't get anything up and it was really painful uh, and scary. I was starting to get really scared, and I had to call my parents at this party and tell them that I had taken a bunch of pills and I needed to go to the hospital. Uh, and and I could just hear my dad. I was talking to my dad, and his voice was just shaking with something. I wasn't really sure, um, but he. I had to call. <laughs> he told me to call. This woman, Marlene, uh, who was the lunch lady at the one room school, to come and get me. <laughs> but, oh, that's so, that's rural 911 yeah, lunch sure. lady. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So she did. She came and she got me and she took me into town uh, to the hospital and they pumped my stomach and all of this stuff, which is re- really unpleasant um, if you haven't experienced it. And finally my parents got there and, uh, you know, they came in and my mom looked at me and started crying and then she ran out of the room and my dad looked at me and he said, how could you do this to your mother? Shame on you. How could you do this to your mother? And I hadn't done anything to my my mother, you know. I mean, I just, I re- just, I so, just remember that face. And I mean, it sounds like Ellie, you were already filling with shame, <clears throat> and then your dad just pours a whole other truckload of shame right on you. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because it became. I mean, again, it wasn't about me or what what I might be feel or like what was clear, like clearly something if, if ever there's a flag that something's wrong, like walking into a hospital with your 12 year old having their stomach pumped um, would be it, I would think. And it wasn't, and it wasn't about me mm-hmm. at, at all. Did um, anything change for you after that? Yeah. Uh, because I, I realized, um, I mean, there were two things like they I was put into counseling uh, with this um, with a man called Mark, uh, who had a crazy 
uh, like permed mullet and a mustache. Like he looked like a like a early seventies porn star or something. I, he was so ridiculous. Uh, and that experience was terrible. Uh, I hate. Oh, I hated him so much. Um, and so there was that. I mean, just this resentment that like that was what was. That's what came out of it was I had to sit in this room with this man who would tell me things like, you know, if I didn't turn myself around, I'd be dead by suicide at 18 or they'd put me in Rivendale, which was the like psychiatric hospital for juveniles. Uh, And so I really started to, I think, see myself as like, you know, I'm I'm clearly like really troubled and, um, and like, and and there's no fixing me. Eating disorders develop as a coping strategy, much like opioids or alcohol or cutting. And at first, the purging and restricting behaviors can work, just as drugs or alcohol or cutting can initially provide great relief. But over time, these toxic coping strategies lose their efficacy, inevitably leading to more and more extreme behaviors. At the same time, uh, I had also had this, I mean, in that that encounter, I had this serendipitous uh, moment where I, I learned how to purge. It didn't work that time. Um, but as I was thinking, you know, nothing had worked so far in terms of um, changing my body. And it occurred to me, like, well, if I can figure out how to do that, then, I mean, I can eat like everybody else and then just do this thing and maybe, and then may I'm not ingesting any calories, right? So I will, I will be thin. Um, and so that's what I did. And that's what happened. Uh, you know, I lost weight. I, um, I did, people started to know, I mean, it was, I mean, I hate to say it, like, but it was it was great. I mean, it it worked. Like, I mean, I I felt like I lo- I looked better. People were telling me that I looked better. People were paying attention to me. Uh, Nate asked me to the eighth grade dance, which was like, give me a break. Like he was like <laughs> super popular, um, and it was really good for the rest of that year. Um, really good. Uh, Except for that I, it wasn't, it didn't take long for that to be, I purged at every meal, um, any set, then I would get hungry, right? And so I would eat and then I would have to do it again. Um, and things were, I mean, I didn't, physically, I didn't feel so great, right? And I mean, at that time with my being so young, there were so many obvious signs, I think, that that's that that was going on. I mean, I broken blood vessels all around my eyes, um, like freckles, like purple freckles everywhere. I had scabs and scars all over my hands. Um, but again, people didn't have a language for it. I mean, or do you think, did your, I mean, your parents were gone so much. Did they not notice something was wrong with you? Or again, was there just no sort of understanding in that time, that place for what you were going through? Well, so here's a, here's a funny thing. Um, My, (laughs) my mom is like a mega fan of Days of Our Lives. And 
she would record it on uh, VHS for us to all watch at dinner together. Um, so that was a really fun family bonding <laughs> experience. Uh, and and at that time, a character on Days of Our Lives, Sammy, developed an eating disorder. She was bulimic. I mean, that was a plot line, like a major plot line. And so we'd watch this at dinner, and then I would be like, I got to go to the bathroom, so I'll see you in like 20 minutes or whatever. And I've talked to my mom since then um, and just asked her, like, did you really not notice anything? And she's, she's said to me, well, you know, we suspect, I mean, it seemed like maybe there were connections. And, you know, I mean... Sammy pulled out of it in a couple of weeks. So, you know, uh, I mean, it, we've, it's just a phase, right? Mm, it's just a phase. Uh, and yeah, and it was not just a phase by, by any stretch. I mean, I'm 42. I'm almost 42 now. Um, and I've been what they call behavior free. If anything related to like what you do in an eating disorder they call behaviors uh in the therapy world and i've been only mostly behavior free for probably three years in high school ellie's father was in a devastating car accident and eventually lost his job leading ellie's parents to move out of state for work and leave her and her younger sister to basically fend for themselves solution uh, was that uh, my mom moved to Wyoming with my dad and my sister and I moved into our own house uh, in town Um, on our own like completely like we paid the rent we both had jobs we paid the rent for the house Um, were you both in high school mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep I was a junior and my sister was Mm -hmm. um, a freshman so um, yeah and we had already, um, she and I were both like dabbling in, um, drugs. Like, you know, we were smoking a lot of pot and drinking and stuff. But then it, um, once we were on our own in that environment, um, then that's when, uh, like meth hit, um, rural America. For me, uh, so the the first time that I did it, um, again, it was it was so great uh, because I uh, and by that time in my eating disorder, I was not just I was purging as you would, but I was also really abusing laxatives, and I was in a real I was physically in a really bad way uh and it was just it was horrifying and so when i discovered um what then we just called crank um i mean i didn't have an appetite that so i didn't have to eat i got i felt very um extroverted and connected to people so i was like talking all the time and making new friends my teachers were like really excited about my contributions to class again it was like that well this is actually pretty cool right um but then uh, what that meant being the kids in town that had a home all of our on our own was that 
our house became a sort of focal point in that scene. Um, and so some really shady folks started hanging around. And I mean, you know, I was, what, 16, sister's 14. And like we had dudes with like names like Wild Bill and stuff, like showing up at our house at like two in the morning with like, you know, drugs they wanted to you know sell through with through kids we knew and you know or they wanted to do drugs with us and and so we were I mean we were just fully enmeshed in that and um and I had been saving for college I mean because I knew I wanted to get the fuck out of there um and I knew we didn't have any money that I mean my parents weren't gonna pay for me to go to college uh and I spent every penny that I had saved on drugs <laughs> that year <laughs> um and uh yeah and then did things like stole from the till at the theater I worked at and whatnot to mm -hmm. to buy more drugs and and I the mean, meth took the place of your eating disorder at least for a, for while. a while it yeah. did yeah um until uh until it just didn't kind of do the same things, you know, the 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 benefits sort of wore off. And then I was mostly just tweaked out all the time. And um, I was super stressed out um, just because of all the illegality around our home and in our home. And I mean, things were just getting really fucked up. My excuse my language, my boyfriend was really addicted to meth and he got really violent and um and so in my stress the the answer was I started um binging and purging it was like okay like I know how to do this like and it you know it was it felt cathartic and uh, then I'd be exhausted afterwards so I would mm. sleep um which <sighs> felt really good so it the two became enmeshed mm -hmm. um again and uh but it sounds like maybe you were starting to see that meth wasn't sustainable definitely in a way that perhaps the eating disorder might be Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I knew that I was not gonna, like, I would not be going to college, like, if, if things continued that way. I just kind of stuck with my eating disorder um, instead. Um, so college saved you from meth? College saved me from meth. Although I guess did. maybe your eating disorder did too. Did too. You swapped one yeah. awful thing for another. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the one and going to college, I mean, it was far more functional and useful. Like, I mean, if I was, if I had a lot of time on my hands, um, and when I had filled up my time, uh, if I was really stressed out, it was a good way to, uh, relax, I guess. Um, I could still, I mean, I could be among all these people and eat whatever I wanted to. So I seemed like I was really unattached to like, like I wasn't your typical girl. Like I'd like go ahead and eat like my hamburger and part of yours too. And people like, wow. Like, you know, it's so cool how you're not like, you know, you're not like other girls. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, so I have to go to the bathroom and I'll see you in 10 minutes, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, 
it did a lot of it was it did a lot for me in college too for for a while eating disorders are a type of addiction but arguably a much harder addiction to overcome than meth or heroin because you can never really leave your drug of choice behind you have to find some way to come to peace with food Every day I would wake up and I would say, okay, so today is the day that I am not going to do this anymore. Um, so everything's going to be good. So in order, so if I'm not going to purge because I struggled primarily with um, bulimia, I probably can't eat breakfast because I don't want to like set the t- with having like uh, the urge um, to to engage in behaviors, as they would say. So I'm not going to eat breakfast. Um, so then it's like 10 o'clock uh, and I'm super hungry. So then I eat uh, and I sit in sort of like white knuckle things like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do something else, you know, go for a walk, whatever. Uh, and then it's lunchtime. And so I'm supposed to eat again. And generally, I mean, at that time of my life, um, you know, I was out on the town a lot. So maybe I meet a friend for lunch, but then I can't like there's it's I don't want to order something that makes me look like I'm like on a diet or something like I don't want to I don't want to be the like lettuce only lady or whatever. So I order something that I know I will not be able to um I will not be able to keep in uh and I tell myself I'm only gonna eat like half of it and then um you know that'll be okay because you know by the end of the day I'm also gonna go for a run so everything's gonna be fine there uh and then of course I eat all of it uh because I'm super hungry uh and so then I have to purge um and compensate later with exercise. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so then I would go, I mean, I started, that's really when I started like getting into exercise stuff. Uh, so then going for a run, then maybe going to the gym. Um, then, you know, it's, I worked at a, uh, I've al- I always worked in movie theaters in high school and college and after that. So then I would go to work uh, and I would tell myself, okay, like I'm probably, I probably shouldn't eat for the rest of the day, like just because of everything that was going on before. And then, of course, I would be surrounded by food uh, that was like not safe food for me. Um, And so I would, the theater was housed in a, in a restaurant also. So you had to, uh, the counter was uh, over on the left and then like the bar and restaurant was here in the hall to the theater so the restaurant and the um, theater had a shared restroom with multiple stalls. Um, and so I couldn't go in there to because I didn't want, like, patrons to hear me. Or, like, God forbid, like, someone that I worked with or knew to come in there. So I would have to go upstairs to the projection booth um, with, like, a bunch of... Uh, like soda cups and whatnot, and then hide those all around the booth and hope that I remember to, um, you know, get the find them again at the end of the night um, so that I could dispose of them. And then I would go out after work and um, go out drinking with my friends. And then I would walk to 
uh, Safeway where I would then uh, like shoplift a bunch of like cookies and I mean I mean just like like seriously like I mean if you can even like, like going into the bakery area drunk and like taking like slices of cheesecake out of the container and shoving them into my coat pocket like my coat pockets were just disgusting uh, and then go it home of, it kind of sounds like what drug addicts might do yeah. Well, I mean, like you were, uh, even when you said, I'm going to wake up in the I'm wake up in the morning and I'm going to, today's going to be a good day. I was thinking yeah. like, today I'm going to quit drinking, today no more yeah. her- heroin, or yeah. like, today no more eating disorder. And as the day rolls along, not only are you unable to stop, but by the end of the day, it's complete loss of any control. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And at the same time, like if you're trying to like access therapy um or you know that was the time when i really i i started trying to tell people you know like okay like i have a problem i have this an eating disorder and so that's what you're that's what you're doing all day it's like an it's like an addict um and that's what it feel you have i had terrible urges i mean overwhelming urges i still i still do uh and then you try to talk to somebody about the fact that you have an eating disorder and you get like, um, well, why don't you just stop? Like, you don't need to lose weight. Like, you know, it's like, well, I'm not, it's not a diet. So, you know, that's not the point anymore at all. I mean, I, that, that's not what I'm trying to do here. How can you do, how can you do this to yourself? Like, you're just killing yourself. How can you just, you know, you're just slowly killing yourself. Like, why don't you just stop? Why don't you just stop? It's food. It's food. It's food. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is food. So I have to eat. That's mm-hmm. so it's it's a problem. Like, it's not something that I can just like say, well, I'm never going to eat again. Um, and so I don't have to worry about it being in my life. I can avoid places where people eat food. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's you you can't. Um, and so it's that compounds everything because people don't understand they think you're on a diet um or that you're selfish uh and wasteful um Mm. especially with like just the amount of waste like yeah what a yeah first world problem huh like Mm. uh yeah well yeah i guess so except for that you know i mean i had times where i um I was literally scrounging change um, from like the seats of my car or my couch to go to buy food to to binge and purge, which I mean, which is pretty sad, um, you know. And therapy was really ineffective for me for a <laughs> long time. <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, it's also you know another part of being in the day of the light is like, okay, so I have to like replace this with something. Like, mm-hmm. what can I, what can I do? And there are there are no replacements. I mean, I did drink very heavily for a, a long time. Also, that certainly didn't make things better. So it sounds like the two deep levels of aloneness. One is that you're so alone feeling in this eating disorder. And two is even when you try to open up to people, 
to talk about it, share it, about it. Yeah. People completely don't get it. You got a first world problem. Yeah. You, why don't you just eat like a normal person? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly that's yeah. that's exactly what it is. And I've found that um, people can talk to you about it with some degree of um, sympathy, if not empathy. If if uh, you can say, uh, well, I had an eating disorder. Well, I used to have an eating disorder. Then, you know, there's a certain level of, yeah, well, well done for making it through that. But if you're in it and you're looking for help from your friends or your family, it's um, nobody knows what to do because they don't they don't get it. And it's gross. I mean, it's it's also like kind of repulsive for for people to really think about. Um, and so people people don't want to talk about it. And and and, you know, I mean, I would ask for help or support or whatever and people, you know like yeah i'm totally on your team and then no one would ever say anything again mm. you know so um so it is really lonely it's like well i have to get better on my own by myself and then i can talk about it and and get support that way once it's once it's over but i have to do the the quote unquote recovery part by myself um, and that's impossible. Uh, so it's just, it's an untenable position to be in. Ellie ended up at a residential treatment center for eating disorders and, to her surprise, was the star pupil, a role model to the younger patients and frequently recognized by the staff as a shining example for others. But, as it became tragically clear, succeeding in a highly structured treatment center was not the same as succeeding in the outside world. can remember like the family therapist saying things to him like you've just got to let her express her feelings like she has got a raging bitch goddess in there and you've got to <laughs> let her get it out like you know you have to be supportive of that I was like yeah you have to be supportive of that uh and I felt really strong and really powerful I was I did not have urges it was not difficult like I I was I was an A plus student in there, and I was told that uh, when I did had my quote unquote graduation or whatever. Uh, my therapist actually said to me, "You know, if we could just make this a full time job, like a like a, a like a residential treatment plant, like to be the model like patient, that's that's you. I mean, it really it's like your calling, which is pretty sad, but." Um, <laughs> You know, I, I felt good about it. I did not have a way to cope with my feelings. Like I have, I had been, I had always used my eating disorder as a way to numb out, uh, deal with stress, take up time where time might be sad. And I did not have that available to me. And I had no way to be a feeling person in the world. And I, and I ended up trying to kill myself. Um, because my eating disorder, I think for a long time had been saving my life and I didn't know it. After residential treatment and her suicide attempt, Ellie tried to rebuild her life and act as if she were okay, not knowing what else to do. I ended up, uh, 
I ended up meeting a new person um, through my <laughs> through my hairdresser, <laughs> and uh, I like talk about the biggest mismatch in the world. She was like. Well, he's from Billings. And I was like, oh, great. And sure, I'll meet him. I love Montanans. And uh, he was every bit of Montana that I um, that I am not. Uh, and, and it was like he was riding dirt bikes all the time and all this weird stuff. But he had had a traumatic brain injury uh, in a motorcycle race the year before. And so we... I think we were both just going through a lot. He also, he had a tra- traumatic brain injury. His wife left him while he was in the hospital, like unable to to move, basically. Um, so was it almost like your hairdresser thought, here are, two, here are, two- here are the people in the <laughs> deepest, darkest, darkest ho- imaginable yeah. hole. Yeah, Maybe. and they grew up right next to one another. <laughs> so it's so a match made it's, in it's heaven. It's a match made in heaven. <laughs> Ellie could no longer pretend that her eating disorder might go away on its own. After trying to open up to friends and family over the years and getting nowhere, a new boyfriend helped her get into the treatment she needed. I started using behaviors again, and the minute that I did, it was just a complete spiral into into the abyss. So you'd held off the purging. You'd been restricting... Yeah. Out of just stress and despair, but yeah. as soon as the purging yeah. started, it yeah. was all over. Yeah. And it was, you know, I mean, it was initially such a relief, um, to tell you the truth. Like, I, I mean, it was like, I finally had, and I was like, I just felt like I was myself again. Like, I hadn't been anybody for the last few months, and I was now... Like, I knew who I was again, you know, because, I mean, all told, again, this is something I think about, too. I mean, at that point in my life, in the 25 years or whatever, um, since I was 10, like, I had had maybe a total of nine months without behaviors. Like, nine months out of decades. And so it really felt like... I had restored a part of myself. Um, like, okay, I know how to do this. Like, this is something, like, I'm good at this. I know how to do it. I know how to do all the planning. I know I know everything that goes into it. No one's ever going to notice. Um, it's almost like bulimia was your operating system. Absolutely. Like that, it was so deeply part of the way you think, feel, and function. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 100%. So I did tell my partner um that you know i was struggling with eating disorder behaviors uh and i (laughs) so i just this is pretty funny honestly so you know i said to him like we were at a restaurant and i said you know i really need to tell you something and he was like okay what's going on i said i'm bulimic and he was like oh okay well you know no big deal my uh you know, my brother was in, uh, had a short prison term um, a couple of years ago. And, and yeah, he had it in there. I mean, tons of people had it in there. And I was like, what? Wait, what? Like, what? <laughs> Bulimia is like a thing in prison? And I was like, what? Wait a minute. What do you, what did you think I, what do you think I said to you? And he's like, you're anemic, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, probably, but um, no, like I can't, that that I, that sums up so much of our communication, actually. Um, but but what happened as a result of that? I mean, he was really concerned, and so he found a place um, in Fort Collins that specialized in eating disorders. And he um, called them. Um, so he did a lot of the same stuff that my uh, best friend had done a few years before. And, you know, he said, you don't have to go, you know, there's like a consultation thing. Uh, just like try that. You don't have to do anything else. And so I went there and and I really felt like I did when I saw my that counselor in eighth grade, you know, like I'm sitting there like slouched in the chair with like my hair in my face and this woman walks in and, you know, like, you know, you like really, you know, you, there's so much healing that happens. You know, we have this group, blah, blah, blah. And it was just like, I am beyond help lady. Like I, like, I don't think you understand what we're, talking about i'm not like your stereotypical college kid i'm not the movie version of the bully like i mean this is this is who i am i am not i am no one without this and i know that because i've tried being without this and there's no one there so today after almost 30 years of battling bulimia ellie has been able to put some distance between herself and her eating disorder she still struggles often painfully but she's also found joy and purpose in a growing sense of peace with food and body image. I have not engaged in behaviors for um, about six months. And, even and by that you mean purging? I do, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and, um, and before that it had been a few months and before that it had been a few months so I feel like um I mean I'm never I I don't I don't really um subscribe to the word recovery um or the the idea that you recover uh because I'm I'm not really interested in re covering the the person that I was however many years ago I'm more interested in who I am now and moving forward and um and I know there's not an end to like you know your eating disorder is never over um but uh but it is not a focus in my life I mean I have even I would say like whole weeks go by when I don't have the urge um, to purge. Uh, I'm married. I just got married in December. I have a 12-year-old stepson. Um, and they're both awesome. I have a dog who's awesome. Uh, I mean, the the building blocks of my life, like the basic bricks of my life are really good um they're I feel really lucky um to have what I have now uh I am I'm on medication um I'm regularly in therapy Uh, I also um 
at take um, ketamine, um, which has been a real game changer, I think, for me in terms of some of the underlying roots of my problems, like uh, just depression that doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Uh, So things aren't perfect, of course, but I mean, I have a lot of agency in my own life. I'm able to stand up for myself when I need to, for the most part, and that's really great. Uh, and, And I still... And I still, I still, you know, I, when I think about the idea of like the darkness, I always, there's all, I always have a foot in the darkness, you know, it's my, it's my natural orientation, I think, but it's a place that I understand now that it is, it is, it's, it's a place. It's not me. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a real difference, I think, because, um, like, it's okay that I live there part of the time because I also live, like, out in the sunshine with, you know, like, green, beautiful, like, life everywhere. And that's okay. I can hold that balance mm-hmm. um, where I think for most of my life, um, I would say it was the re- re- the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um I'm guessing it was the long and complicated journey from what four or five years ago when you were sitting in that uh, treatment center office in Fort Collins and and as you yeah. told us just before thinking basically I'm kind of a hopeless case this is what I do I yeah. I am my eating disorder and I'm wondering if you could just outline maybe the highlights the key insights treatment like if you mm-hmm. did distill out what were the most important pieces that got you from that person to where you are today sure so um as i mentioned before i am really good at at treatment if it's um like big like not just going to see a therapist weekly and whatnot so the minute that i signed up um to go into what was um iop so it's intensive outpatient treatment so i would go um three nights a week uh, for four hours. And then uh, I would see my therapist and a nutritionist also that same week. Um, and the minute that I got in, I stopped using behaviors. Uh, I had some of the tenants were the same um, in that I was definitely one of the older folks in there, but not the oldest. Um, there are a lot of young women um, and I think the I felt really a- accountable to to them um, because there was so much pain in in that space, and I did not want to do anything that contributed to that pain. So I really thought that well, what that means then is I'm the model patient, right? Like, so I'm going to be really supportive. I'm going to ask good questions, and as time went on, I mean, because it's like a six month process. Uh, and where I had, when I had been in residential, that was six weeks. So this is six months and about two months in, 
I became, I was fully back in the abyss. I mean, I was, I was thinking about suicide all the time. I was crying all the time. I couldn't do anything. And I think at that point, my therapist, I think, helped me make the connection that that's what my eating disorder does. Like, if I don't have my eating disorder, then this is what I get because I don't have any other way to cope, right? And so she kept telling me, like, you know, it's... (laughs) And it's cliche, but like, you've got to trust the process. You've got to trust the process. You know, hang on. You have to share in group. And that is what I did not do, I think, in when I was in residential. Like, I did not want to be, and I, I wanted to be the A student. I don't want things to be messy and complicated. And so I would have to sit in that group with people asking me really hard questions and like not being able to talk like being a mess and sobbing and being angry and it was I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I couldn't keep myself together but the point I think was not keeping myself together uh and just being able to be in it in a supported space um she also connected me uh with my psychiatrist um and that helped so much. Oh, my God. Because, I mean, I the despair. I mean, I was trying to tolerate the despair. But, I mean, I was living in a space of just barely tolerating things. And he was able to um, work with me to find um, some the, the right combination of medication, uh, which was really something because I have been I remember that first meeting with him and he kept asking me like well have you been on this have you been on that have you been on this have you been on that yep yep Mm mm-hmm yep nope that one that one gave me night terrors Mm mm-hmm yep no that one made me yawn all the time and I had dry mouth no that one made me insane uh I mean and it was and it was I mean I I felt like I mean which was the same thing like see like see there's nothing and then he asked me if I had been on this one medication, uh, Wellbutrin, which um, they don't generally let you have if you have bulimia because um, it can induce seizures or something. And, like, it's a bad deal. Like, if you're actively in behaviors, you should not take Wellbutrin. But I wasn't um, actively in behaviors, and so I started taking Wellbutrin, and that made a big – that was a marked shift. I mean, I certainly wasn't, like – you know, a bright and bushy-tailed new person, but I was not suicidal, and that was a really great feeling. Uh, and I mean, I just, I guess I learned to be, like, that, I mean, you, like, I really had to be vulnerable, and I didn't have a choice but to be vulnerable um, because of where I was at in the process, Even after her six months of intensive outpatient therapy, ongoing weekly therapy with an eating disorder specialist, and daily medication, Ellie's depression and sense of overwhelm returned. Fortunately, she had a powerful response to ketamine and has continued to do maintenance treatments monthly. I don't know what I would do without it at this point in my life, maybe in the future, who knows. But I mean that it... 
it has really provided a space for me to reset and quite it's like quiet in my mind in a way like when I say I have one foot in the darkness one of the ways that that manifests is that I just have this constant narrative in my head of things that that that's just appalling like it's so dark and I can't I generally I can't turn it off when it's going it's just going like you know I'm at work maybe I'm giving a presentation and in the back of my mind it's you know maybe somebody murdered your mother your mom might be dead in her house right now um you know and you're just sitting here doing that what if your sister fell off you know and that I had thought was just something I was always gonna have to live with and with ketamine I, I don't have to live with that and that has so improved my quality of life overall that mm-hmm. like when I if I'm having random thoughts um they're usually more like philosophical and esoteric it's not like what like mm-hmm. what tragedy has befallen befallen us now and so that's been um you're doing maintenance treatments I am. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that's pretty, pretty awesome. My meds have not changed in years. And that's crazy. Like, I mean, I, it used to be like, I mean, with everybody, with each new therapist, with each new doctor, it's like, you know, well, we'll just throw this at you, like, and see what sticks. But you have to wait four weeks, and um, and then we'll reassess from there. So if you're miserable, eh, you're just miserable, and, and we'll see what happens. Uh, it's exhausting. Um, so the idea that I have not had that experience for years is pretty awesome, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. What are the take-home messages from Ellie's story? Ellie started the path to healing when she began to do the work of building a new self, a self separate from the deeply wired-in operating system of her eating disorder. To do this, she needed eating disorder specialists. She needed to start to open up about everything she absolutely did not want to open up about. And she found significant relief with the right medications and with ketamine. And even still, for Ellie, it's a day-to-day affair. Ellie reminded us that she still has one foot in the darkness, but I can assure all of you, after I sat with her today, most of her is bathed in the light. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson who does our sound, and thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.